This week I had a couple of um, moderately irritating situations to deal with. <clears throat> On the ground scale of things, to be honest, you know, compared with some of the things we prayed about this morning, they were positively trivial. They simply required a bit of patience, a bit of wisdom from me, and uh, they would be sorted. But I felt deeply grumpy about them, frankly. I was annoyed that I should have to deal with these irritations. I thought, and then I even found myself saying at one point, why should I have to put up with this? And um, having vented my spleen, I sat down to prepare my sermon today. And I read Romans 8.17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And I have to say, I saw at that moment a little bit more of my sin and immaturity, which God has yet to deal with. I am promised a share in God's glory. And yet there is an if in that verse, isn't there? If I am prepared to share in Christ's sufferings. And I thought to myself, how little suffering I have known so far. How little suffering I am actually willing to endure. In my experience so far, I've had... uh, Uh, no bereavement of anyone particularly close to me. My body still is working reasonably well for a 40-something. I'm I'm in a house, in a city that I enjoy. I love my job. I have a wife and children who uh, love me most of the time anyway. And yet, the little trials that come my way make me say in exasperation, why should I have to put up with this? And here in Romans uh, 8.17 is part of my answer. Actually an answer that I must learn and we must learn together. It is the answer actually that Peter gave in 2 Peter 2.21 to Christian slaves who were being beaten by their cruel masters who had no opportunity for, for redress. And Peter said this, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To this you were called, he says, if you're a follower of Christ. We are only promised Christ's glory if we are prepared to share in Christ's sufferings. We've been studying Romans 8 for a few weeks now. We've been asking a repeated question. Why are we not more changed as Christians? Or putting it more positively, how can we be more changed, more Christ-like as Christians? Or perhaps to put it in in yet another way, which is closer, I think, to Paul's um, direct intention, what does it really mean to live as a Christian? What does Christian life look like? It seems to me that actually much of our weakness and immaturity as Christians is a failure 
uh, comes from a failure to understand what Romans 8 tells us, a failure to understand what the Christian life really is like, what we are promised and what we aren't promised. We've seen, for instance, that if we are Christians, then we are promised that all our sins, past, present and future, are forgiven. Our sins do not need to intimidate us because God has forgiven them. We don't need to fear God's anger. He deals with our sins uh, now not to punish us at all because he punished all our sins in the death of his, his son, Jesus Christ. He deals with our sins now only in order to mature us, only in order to grow us, only in order us to, to liberate us from the bondage of those sins, only in order to set us free. He, ex- he, he gives us, pours out on us only his love, not his wrath. We've seen that um, we grow as Christians over the last couple of weeks, not actually by self-imposed legalism and rules but actually through cultivating the work of the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit who draws us to God, the Spirit who himself hates us, uh, helps us to put to death evil deeds in our bodies. The Spirit who determinedly leads us in paths of righteousness and who assures us most centrally that God is our eternal, loving, overwhelmingly kind Father so that we find from the bottom of our hearts we cry out to him as Jesus did to him Abba, Father. This is how we are liberated from the misdeeds of the body. By letting God's Spirit actually have his way in our hearts. But now there is a tough word to us. Perhaps we didn't understand um, uh, in the first half of Romans 8 how radically God has helped us and is helping us. Now, there is something else we need to get straight. A statement actually which we must, which we sometimes rebel against. We must share in Christ's suffering. Willingly. If we are to share in Christ's glory. And it seems to me that that is another major cause of spiritual immaturity. We demand that God should do everything now. I want to be only happy now. I want to be wealthy now. I want to enjoy perfect health now. If God says he loves me and he is good and true to his word, why doesn't he sort out all my problems now? It's said that the biggest ob- objection to, to, to uh, um, people believing in God, to the existence of God even today. How could God of love exist if I'm unhappy? Dear friends, don't be surprised, says Peter in 1 Peter 4, at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Or 1 Peter 5 verse 10 The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while 
will himself restore you. Again and again and again, the New Testament says, there is no promise actually to be liberated now from suffering. There is final liberation, final glory, final overwhelming joy. But today, says the New Testament, an essential part of our calling as Christians is that we suffer. Indeed, that we share in the sufferings of Christ. Suffering comes on the whole creation, as we will see in a moment. But says the New Testament, there is a special and acute way in which that suffering comes on God's people. Let me say to you, I, I, I need to learn this. You need to learn this. Because you will suffer. we will be bereaved. We will have to endure difficult relationships. We will be forced into situations we would never choose. Our bodies will wear out and that may be painful and trying and deeply difficult. We will die. And when those things happen to us, you see, if we haven't begun to interact with what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, 17 to 25, and actually a faith that once looked bright and shiny and enthusiastic will be rapidly turned into a dull, disillusioned, grumpy, bitter faith at best and at worst will be found not to be a faith at all. Not Christian faith anyway. Now this morning we're going to begin looking at this theme and next week we're going to continue it and I I had three nice headings um, uh, for this morning and by the time I'd finished writing on the first one I'd run out of time. Um, So um, with apologies to the the older members of Junior Church who are coming here um, trying to take notes and hopefully trying to hang um, what, what I say on a number of useful headings. I only have one. So you'll have to try and make the best of it as you can. One heading, it's worth it. That's what we need to see, it's worth it. It's worth the suffering that the Bible warns us we will endure. Weigh them on the scales, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Weigh them on the scales and actually our sufferings will be seen to be light and momentary compared to what he calls the eternal weight of glory which God has in store for us. Or here in chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we b- will be revealed in us or to us. What is that glory? It involves, says these verses, uh, the completion of our adoption as sons, the final redemption, liberation of our, our flesh and bones. Verse 23, do you see? We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The present hidden number of God's elect will be finally 
gloriously displayed, says verse 19, the creation, he says, waits for the sons of God to be revealed. And actually that mention of creation alerts us to the fact that this is not just a hope for us, the whole of God's creation is going to be set free from its present tarnished, broken, cursed existence. Verse 21 says, the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to, uh, to, to decay. Next week we are actually going to look like look a little bit more detail at what it means for us and actually the whole of creation to live within this bondage to decay. But this week we just need to see clearly, transparently, brightly what our hope is. Our hope is resurrection hope. For us, because Jesus rose from the dead, because Jesus was resurrected, we are promised that we in turn will be resurrected without pain, without decay, without sin, forever. Without death. And also, says this passage and a few others, the whole of God's creation will in a comparable way be resurrected. We are told that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Now I want to probe this morning and spend our time probing a little bit deeper about what that means, what we are to expect, what our Christian hope really is. Because I think we often get it wrong. We often don't see it. We often actually have a very, very hazy, tarnished, dull picture of what the future will be like. Let me say first of all, our Christian hope is not simply that our souls will continue forever without bodies. In Paul's day, actually, most people believed that, believed in the immortality of the soul, as frankly most people today believe that somehow there is some continuing spiritual existence of, 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 of some sort. And the New Testament says, no, our hope is emphatically better than that. Jesus, says the New Testament, rose bodily from the dead. He handled things, he broke bread, he cooked a meal. He ate fish with his disciples. In Luke 24, people think, uh, uh, pe the, 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 the people think he is actually just a disembodied spirit, just a continued immortal soul, perhaps continuing on. They call it, call, call it a ghost. They think he's a ghost. And then and in verse 39 of Luke 24, Jesus says this, Look at my hands, my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. We've already seen flesh, actually, in Romans 8. Flesh, we are told, is weak. Our flesh is weak and not able to make us good on its own. But the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, still has flesh, flesh and bones, he says. No longer perhaps weak, 
but still fleshy. And the Bible insists that what happened to Jesus will happen to us. Well, what will this bodily resurrection then of God's people be like? And in the past, I and others were inclined to stress the discontinuity that there is between that future resurrection life that we are promised and our present life. There will be no death. That's, discon- that, that, that's not the same as now. That Jesus says in Matthew 22 that there will be no marriage and so on. But actually, frankly, as I've looked at what the New Testament tells us, it seems to me that the New Testament is emphasising the continuity with our present life. For instance, some people suggest that resurrection life must be very different, the resurrection life of Jesus, because on several occasions in the Gospels, uh, the risen Jesus is not immediately recognised. But actually, when that occurs in the Gospel accounts, the uh, authors are very careful to specifically say that people were kept from recognising Jesus. That happens on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, for instance. They were kept kept from recognising him. In other words, it needed to be a miracle for them not to recognise Jesus. Or uh, uh, when uh, we read the the story of uh, Mary and Jesus in the garden in John, uh, John is quite careful to uh, indicate that Mary hadn't really properly looked at Jesus. John says she then turned to look at him. And most of the time in the resurrection accounts, people readily recognise him. And um, uh, even when he's not recognised, they think of him as an ordinary person. Mary didn't think that Jesus in the garden, um, the risen Jesus in the garden was an angel. She thought he was the gardener. She didn't see, you see, some glowing supernatural figure. She saw someone who look very ordinary. Jesus' resurrected body looked like any ordinary human body. Perhaps he had lost the marks of ageing and uh, the worst effects of the torture that had happened to him. Perhaps that's why he was different and not always immediately recognised. Many, many have suggested down through the ages in the, the history of the church that his resurrected body and therefore perhaps our resurrected body, was in the prime of young adulthood. certainly fits the evidence, and it might explain why first they don't recognise him, then of course they do. It's stunningly clear. Um, For instance, uh, you may not be able to see it. There's a picture of me 23 years ago. And even if the picture was... uh, um, uh, uh, properly projected, I don't think you'd recognise me. My own brother didn't recognise me in that photo. That seems actually very likely that um, Jesus was in his prime again. Very human. Human enough to be mistaken for a gardener. Some protest. Actually, Jesus seems to have miraculous powers when he's risen from the dead. He he seems to materialise in rooms. 
disappear from the disciples uh, suddenly on the road to the uh, Maus. But actually when you look at it, the descriptions of Jesus coming and going are no more mysterious than uh, descriptions of uh, uh, some of Jesus' actions in his pre-death ministry. On one occasion it is said that he walked right through a crowd that was baying for his blood because his time had not yet come. Actually, it's not particularly different from what happens to some of the disciples in Acts where Philip, we, we, we learn, is, is moved from one place to the other by the Holy Spirit. I, um, I don't think he was probably beamed up quite like um, uh, in, in Star Trek. I, I, I think he, it's just a way to indicate that Philip knew from God he'd got to go to a completely new place and start, start, start a new ministry. And those, those descriptions, though, are not particularly different from when uh, uh, the risen Jesus is described as suddenly being in the room with them. Actually, if you think about it, Jesus' resurrection appearances seem almost more natural than his life before he was crucified because then he was going about feeding 5,000 and healing people and driving out demons. And now, what's he doing? Sitting down and cooking breakfast for his disciples. Perhaps the strongest case for discontinuity between our present body and our resurrected body comes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and I want to put a crucial bit of that up on the screen so that you can see it um, this morning. You could turn to it and see the context if you want or just uh, uh, read this part. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. The whole of the chapter um, the Apostle has been talking about Jesus' resurrection and what that means for us and our future. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead, says Paul. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And there are clear discontinuities that Paul is setting out here. Our present body, he says, is perishable, it dies. When it is raised, it's imperishable, it will live forever. Our present body suffers dishonour because we sin with our present body. But it will be raised glorious because God will liberate us from all sin and forgive all our past sins. Our present body, he says, is weak. We've already seen that in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 3. Well, he says, then it will be raised in power. It will be powerfully enabled to defeat all sin and to uh, delight in serving God. And then there's this crucial verse, verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And surely we think, that clinches it. Here it is flesh and blood, there it's somehow spiritual. Well, let me say first of all, of course, both, the body is in both of those. Natural body, and spiritual body. It's not saying that there will be a bodyless existence in the future. But more than that, actually, the word that, that the phrase that's translated natural body, actually, um, the, the word translated natural comes from the, the word for, for soul, our soul. 
You could literally translate it there, it wouldn't make much more sense. It is sown a soulish body. What that, what that means is that now, in our present existence, there is a spiritual force within us which empowers our body, called our soul, which is actually all too fallen and broken and sinful. So that we have now a soulish body, a body that, as we've seen over the previous weeks, is... uh, given life again and again by a force that actually causes us to sin. It is raised, then, says Paul, a spiritual body. And in the rest of 1 Corinthians, it's absolutely clear what Paul means by spiritual. A spiritual person is a person who, by the power of the Spirit, is able to do good to live as God wants them to do, to overcome sins in the body. So when Paul says it is sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body, he's saying effectively exactly the same thing as he said when he said it's sown in dishonour, raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, raised in power. He's saying that now the spiritual force that empowers our body actually leads us to sin, but then the spiritual force that empowers our body will finally liberate us from sin, but it will be in the body. There is discontinuity, he says. Because now we sin and die. Then God will liberate us from sin. And we will not die. Touch me, says Jesus. I have flesh and bones. You too will have. And the future of God's whole creation seems to, seems to actually have similar strong lines of continuity between this present existence and our future one. 2 Peter 3 tells us that actually the present earth will be destroyed by fire before God creates a new heaven and a new earth. But it's not actually clear whether this fire will annihilate the world like fire destroys paper or whether it will purify it as gold is purified in a fire. The imagery of Judgment Day though, when Jesus comes again, is always of Jesus returning from heaven to the earth, judging the earth and establishing his kingdom, his reign, his rule on the earth. Interestingly, when uh, John describes God's new creation in the vivid imagery of Revelation 21, he portrays a new heaven and a new earth and then the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth. God doesn't seem to be intending to take his whole creation somehow up into heaven and recreate it up there. The picture again and again is of Jesus and God himself coming from heaven 
and recreating his new creation here. Quite how different and how similar it, it will be. It, we cannot be precise about But we overplay our cards if we think that it will be so different that it is beyond imagination in completely new dimensions actually established up there in the invisible realms of heaven in the presence of God. just doesn't seem to be there in scripture. One uh, classic uh, verse that perhaps proves the case even more though people would raise it as an objection is when in Philippians 3 verse 20 Paul the Apostle says that our citizenship is in heaven. Surely that proves the case that we're heading for an eternal existence up there, somewhere beyond, in some, in, in some new realm. But actually the Philippians knew what citizen, Roman citizenship was all about. Rome had, uh, uh, the Roman Empire had got so many Roman citizens that uh, they couldn't all live in Rome. And so they had started to set up colonies around uh, the, the Roman world where Roman citizens could dwell, have special protection um, and uh, look for the protection of the emperor. Philippi was one such, uh, one such col- colony. And uh, the apostle s- seems to have exactly that image in his mind as he describes what our citizenship in heaven is like. He says the point is not that some, uh, at some point I'm going to take you to a mysterious realm forever but actually at some point I'm going to come and create and pre- defend you and protect you and create a glorious realm where you are. Look at what he goes on to say. Our citizenship is in heaven And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There is continuity then. God comes in some way and creates a new heaven and a new earth, it seems within his universe. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead with flesh and bones and walked the earth and fished and talked to his disciples, so there is a new creation awaiting us which is much more like the present creation than it is unlike it. Well, certainly there are images like in Isaiah chapter 11 of lions eating straw. There will be differences that we, we can't get our minds round yet. But there will still be lions, says Isaiah 11. But are recognisable as lions. And I dwell on this at length this morning and it's the foundation for what we're going to say uh, uh, next week because I want you to get in your mind um, a little bit more of the glory of what God is offering us. It is worth it.
difficult and painful things will happen in in this life. And we may think, well, what's the use of following God? But actually, there is incredible glory ahead of us. You love this world? You will adore the new creation. You love flowers, meadows, hills, mountains, sea, all those wonderful things. Imagine them with no environmental damage, no desertification, no pollution, no global warming. You, you love good food and wine. You will adore the resurrection life. Uh, wine's one of the few things that Jesus explicitly says we'll drink in heaven, in, in his new creation. Often the new creation is described as a feast. You love good company, conversation, friendship. Imagine it without any sin to mar our relationships. Imagine us giving gifts of love to one another so that actually love is stirred up in their hearts and they give, they give their love back to us. And that just increases the love that we have for them. And so we give back even deeper, more profound affectionate love to them and they back to us. And there is no sin ever to mar it, ever to break that eternal chain where in which love and delight and satisfaction and pleasure just increases and increases and increases and increases. Now, someone may protest, well, what about the things we lose? Certainly there's no sex, they say, and that's a pretty big loss. And there is no procreation, no marriage in heaven, in this new, at the resurrection, as Jesus puts it. But where does our desire for sex come from? Isn't it a desire for intimacy? And that will not be gone. Rather, actually, that will be expanded to include all people with whom we have the most delightful intimacy imaginable. Perhaps a part of their desire for sex is bodily pleasure. Do you think our resurrected bodies will enjoy less pleasure than we enjoy today? I think not. It seems much more likely, actually, that in the resurrected state, that... that, um, fleeting, imperfect, often disappointment, the disappointing experience of sex. Um, uh, and that is the case for, um, uh, no matter what Hollywood might tell you, that will be seen as a pale shadow of the ecstasy and intimacy that we enjoy every day in all relationships for all eternity. We will sense no loss of any sort, of anything, in our future existence compared with this one. Another person will say, well, it'll be boring, won't it, just sitting around? Well, who said there would be nothing to do? In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, before sin marred the world, Adam and Eve were given the garden to work it and care for it. After the fall, That work turned into toil. But why should there not be joyful, productive, creative things to do in the new creation? And at the heart of all that resurrected new creation, 
says the Bible, is God himself. Now no longer hidden from us, now personally with, with us. Now we rejoice in him and he in us and our love to him is returned by his love for us and we praise and he expresses delight in us because now we see him face to face. Now he personally wipes away every tear from our eyes. Now actually what our hearts long for at their deepest level are satisfied and then re-satisfied and again and again and again. It is worth it. Though you and I suffer now, though we live in a fallen world of pain and sickness and death now, though actually in our future, immediately, there may be great pain, there may be real suffering, there may be terrible loss, there may be long periods of darkness, there may be real misery, they are not worth comparing to the glory that God has in store for us, says Paul. I'd love to tell you that I can wave a magic wand and all suffering will be history now. But Jesus does not offer that. Indeed, in every place, as I said at the beginning, he warns us there will be suffering. But it is worth it. Next week we're going to explore more as to how then, as Christians... We can live in this world of suffering. Today let me just tell you a story about yesterday. We were in St Paul's Cathedral yesterday as a family. We listened to uh, uh, the great organ playing uh, Vidor's Toccata and uh, as Judy and I gazed up at the uh, vaulted dome above us, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, it's extraordinary, and listened to those magnificent notes playing uh, in such a way that they, they made your body shake. I almost felt as if you, I'd heard and seen God's eternal victory that one day will be declared. Actually 400 years ago the uh, poet John Donne was uh, Dean of St Paul's and he summed up the Christian's joyful, resilient, triumphant attitude to all suffering and even death itself with um, an extraordinary poem, Death Be Not Proud. Let me just read to you some of it to finish our time. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet can thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. It is worth it. It is profoundly worth it. It is like exchanging a penny of suffering for a million pounds of glory.
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's pray.